Please open your Bibles once again to John chapter 11, and we'll be starting in verse 1. And what I want to focus on this morning is the sickness, death, and resurrection of Lazarus, and what this miracle, since it was Jesus' highest, with the exception of his own resurrection, it was his ultimate miracle that he performed. So what does this miracle represent? So how do we understand this miracle? Was this a miracle given by Jesus as one last attempt to convince his enemies that he was God? If so, it was unsuccessful. The story ends with an even greater attempt of his enemies to kill him. Or was it performed largely out of compassion for his friends? On the surface, this seems the most acceptable. But if this is the case, why did Jesus delay his return to Bethany for two days and waited for Lazarus to die? Or did he just raise Lazarus for no other reason than he could? But these questions are not where the story begins. It begins with a problem in verse 1. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The problem is Lazarus is sick. He's seriously ill and um, dying, really. Now, in verse 2, verse 2 tells us who Mary is. This is the Mary that breaks the ointment and and anoints the Lord. But this hasn't happened yet. This happens in chapter 12. But John just includes this as identification so we know what Mary this is. Now, let's consider the sickness of Lazarus. Now, this is a problem which we all identify with at some, at some point in our lives. Friends and relatives are taken through sickness or accidents. And since this is unavoidable, what should we do in such circumstances? There's probably no better example than what Mary and Martha do here. Look at verse 3. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So they bring it to the Lord. That they they do this is significant. Commentator A.W. Pink writes, he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. No, he is full of compassion. For when on earth he too was acquainted with grief, he sympathizes deeply with his suffering people and invites them to pour out the anguish of their hearts before him. Mary and Martha show great wisdom in going to the Lord with this. Before we look at uh, the way in which Mary and Martha approach Jesus, we need to look at an obvious point. The point is that even those who love Jesus get sick and eventually die. Now, it may be that Mary and Martha were surprised that someone whom Jesus loved could become sick. After all, he healed many people. And perhaps it was normal to think that anyone that he loved would not get sick. Uh, there's And there's just a suggestion of the surprise in verse 3, the word behold. Behold is usually used when there's um, something unexpected occurring. So Lazarus' sickness was unexpected. So how can this be, Lord? You love Lazarus, and yet he's become deathly ill. One might think, because one is loved by Christ, they're somehow inoculated from disease on this earth. But they shouldn't have been surprised. Why, should, why do I say that? Because the man whom Jesus loves is, after all, just a man. 
It's the nature of being human to get sick. In one of his sermons, Charles Spurgeon wrote, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. So our physical bodies are not exempt from the illnesses of this world. Even though the soul may be regenerated, the body is still under the curse of sin, which is the cause of aging and ultimately death. So on what basis did Mary and Martha approach Jesus? Was it they had apparently had Jesus in their home often and he therefore owed them something for their hospitality? No. Was it that they had served him faithfully and had been true to him when other followers fell away? No. Was it because they loved him? No. The basis of his appeal was in verse 3, that he loved them. That is, it was in God's love that they took refuge rather than in the love of man. They took refuge in the fact that Jesus loved them, not that they loved Jesus. There's no lasting comfort in the love of men, right? They can love you today and hate you tomorrow. Now let's suppose for a minute that their appeal had been that they loved Jesus. Suppose they said, Lord, the one who loves you is sick. Is there a difference between those two statements? Now, that would have been true, at least in part, for they did love him. But if they had appealed on that basis, they would soon have been asking, have we loved him enough? Has our love been a true love? If they had appealed on the basis of their love for him, it would have become a work situation. They'd be earning the love of Christ because it was based on their own actions. But they do not make that statement, do they? They say, the Lord whom you love is sick. They leave it entirely in the hands of Jesus. Their appeal is not that they loved him, but that he loved them. Also, in coming to Jesus in this way, the sisters came not seeking their own will, but rather the will of Jesus. For one thing, they did not actually make a request. They simply make the statement that Lazarus was sick. Clearly, there's there's an implication that they would like Jesus to come to their aid, and certainly that he might heal Lazarus. We know this because if this is not implied, there was no point even in sending him the message that Lazarus was sick. They knew he could heal the sick, but when they phrased the message as they did, Lord, the one whom you love is sick, they indicated that they were seeking his will rather than theirs. They stated the situation and left it to Jesus. Now let's look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, the place to begin with with this verse is that the fact that only God knows the future. There are three reasons why God foretells the future in Scripture. Number one is to demonstrate his power to control it. Number two, to warn the unsaved. And number three, to encourage believers. In this case, Jesus foretells the future encourage the believers, Mary and Martha and his disciples who were there. Jesus says that the sickness of Lazarus was not unto death in the final sense, but rather that it was for God's glory. Then he added that that God's son will be glorified through it. The purpose of Lazarus dying was not his final death. It was to demonstrate the glory of God through it, namely his resurrection, would be the demonstration of the glory and power of God. 
Now let's look at 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now we've already seen that uh, Jesus loved Lazarus, but now we find out he also loves Mary and Martha, which is obvious. The interesting thing about these statements concerning Christ's love is that they are given in a context that might cause us to doubt them if we didn't know better. The problem we see lies, number one, in the fact that Lazarus was sick. And, and in, spite of, yeah, in spite of the fact that Lazarus was sick, and that Jesus loved him and could heal him, if Jesus really loves us, how can he let this happen? The other problem is we have is in verse 6. We read that again. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days longer in the same place where he was. Jesus delays his return to Bethany rather than immediately rushing either to help Lazarus or comfort the sisters. But the question is, why didn't he go immediately? As soon as he heard Lazarus was sick, he deliberately waits two more days until he departs. Now notice in verse 6, the word therefore. I'm not sure if it's in the new Bible. Where it says, when he heard therefore, he was sick. By using the word therefore, we understand that the delay was in some sense connected to verse 5. He loved them. The verse is saying, therefore, or because he loved them, he delayed in coming to them. So how can this be? Because he loved them, he delayed his return for two more days? Now, if we were in Christ's place, we probably would come would have left immediately, but he waits two more days. So we might ask, does God delay? Yes, he does delay at times. Is he slack or slow? No, he's not. He's never slow or behind schedule but he delays for a purpose, always for a purpose. He has his own timing, not ours. All right, verse 7. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Verse 7 tells us that after the passing of the two additional days, he informs his disciples they are going back to Judea. Now, chapter 10 of John's Gospel is where the Pharisees ask him if he's the Christ. And he answers, I and the Father are one. Then they took up stones again to stone him. So he departs Jerusalem and heads east, the scripture says. And in 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 40, it says, And he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John had first baptized, and there he abode. So he's on the east side of the Jordan River now, approximately two days away from the Jerusalem area, which Bethany is two miles outside of Jerusalem. So in order to come to Lazarus, he must re-enter hostile territory. He must come back into Judea, into the vicinity of Jerusalem, where his enemies are. Now the disciples pick, on this, pick up on this right away. Look at verse 8. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? So their reaction reveals the power of the Pharisees and the religious authorities. They were to be feared, feared by the people. Uh, the disciples were afraid to go back after what had happened in chapter 10 with the attempted stoning. But the Lord replies with a saying, and it's really a proverb. He states this in verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles, because there is no light in him. Now, the Jewish day was divided into uh, 
12 hours for the day. The daylight hours were 12 hours. That's why Jesus says 12 hours. Now, upon initial reading, this may make sense to us that during the day, people can function because there's light. But when the night comes, then activity stops because of the darkness. But he's, this is a parable now, what he's teaching here now. Twelve hours of the day symbolize the duration of the Lord's earthly ministry as allotted by the Father. The night signifying the end of his earthly ministry would come at the precise time set by God's eternal plan. And man's actions cannot change this. So now just as no one can lengthen or shorten the day, the disciples' concern could not lengthen the time allotted to Jesus. In other words, by keeping him away from Jerusalem to protect him. Nor could the Pharisees and scribes shorten it by seizing him before the predetermined time. So Jesus is saying it's perfectly safe to go back to Jerusalem at this time. There's no need to fear at this time. Spiritually, it was still daylight. So he's telling the disciples his enemies cannot touch him at this point. His time had not yet come. Let's look at verse 11. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now this verse suggests that Jesus paused to allow what he just taught the disciples to sink in because it says these things he said, and after that he said the next statement to them. Now the disciples, uh, sleep is used throughout the Bible as a euphemism for death. Many times you'll read something in the Old Testament that he so-and-so slept with his fathers. He was buried with his his ancestors. For Jesus, therefore, to say that he would awaken Lazarus out of sleep was to speak metaphorically of raising Lazarus from the dead. Now the disciples completely misunderstand the symbolism of the statement. Look at verse 12 and 13. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. But Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. So the disciples are relieved to hear Lazarus is on the road to recovery, or so they thought anyway. The disciples' mistake flow, flows from their misunderstanding of Jesus' statement back in verse 4, that the death was, sickness was not unto death. So they assumed that Lazarus was not dying because of Jesus' statement. They misunderstood it. So they believed his condition was improving and would continue to do so with adequate rest. At that point, Jesus ends their confusion in verses 14 and 15. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now here's an unmistakable indication of the Lord's omniscience, since the messenger had merely said that Lazarus was sick. Second, ma- second messenger had not come to inform Jesus that Lazarus had died. But there was no way of him to know that except the fact that he's God and knows that it happened already. So in verse 15, he makes a rather odd statement. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. So the question is, is he saying our friend Lazarus is dead and boy, am I glad about that? No, he's not saying that at all because he qualifies it says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That you, why? Because that you may believe. So why was he glad? What was he glad about? In effect, he's saying that 
what he's saying is Lazarus' resurrection from the dead would do far more to strengthen the faith of the disciples than a mere healing would do. He'd done healings before. <clears throat> that is what he was glad about. Their faith would be strengthened much more by the resurrection than by the healing. Let's look at verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So here we have Thomas, who of course we know is doubting Thomas, right? But there's more, obviously much more to this man because this statement reflects love, devotion, and courage in spite of his pessimism. <clears throat> his negativity led him to believe that the disciples would be killed if they went back to Jerusalem. Of course, later he shows his negativity in the upper room, not believing of the resurrected Christ. Now, Jesus returns in verse 17 to Bethany. Then when Jesus came, he found that he, he, found that he had lain in the grave four days already. So he's back now. After his journey from Perea, which is the area on the east side of um, the Jordan River, Jesus returns and apparently was told that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. But of course, he already knew this too. He knew when Lazarus died. But the four days are very significant. In fact, Jesus intentionally timed his return. He would not get back to Bethany before the four-day period. Where he was two days away, he waits two more days to come back. So what's significant about the four days? Uh, rabbinic writings from this period suggest a possible reason for this. And it is that the Jews believe that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. On the fourth day, the soul departed. So four days made it absolutely certain that the person had moved beyond all hope of resuscitation. Only then would a death be considered completely irreversible after the four days. Now, no doubt Jesus is aware that his enemies would do anything to discredit him, his miracles. So he doesn't rush to Bethany, raise Lazarus before the four-day period, giving his enemies cause to say, well, all he did was resuscitate him. He lets enough time pass to make it absolutely certain that Lazarus is very much dead. And that, and that, would, that what Jesus is about to do is a true miracle. Verses 18 and 19 now. Now, Bethany was near unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's about two miles. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Well, the fact that many people came from Jerusalem to console the sisters suggests that the family was fairly prominent. Now, from the human perspective, the mourners were there to comfort the sisters in their loss. But from God's perspective, they were there to witness this, the miracle that was about to happen. The raising of Lazarus would be done in, public, in a public place before numerous onlookers, many of whom were hostile to the Lord. And as a result, not even Jesus' enemies would be able to deny what he had done. Now, in verse 20, we get a glimpse into the personalities of the two sisters. <clears throat> then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. Mary sat still in the house. And we know Martha from her previous, in Luke 10, it talks about her being distracted with her busyness. And she seems to be a much more um, outgoing person. Uh, pushy, if you want to say that. <laughs> 
Mary was the quiet, contemplative one. She's always seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Now, according to Jewish custom, those who suffered loss of a loved one remained seated while the mourners consoled them. But Martha, in keeping with her forceful personality, left, leaves the house and went to meet Jesus as he approached, while Mary remained behind as was proper. Now, this is a study in contrast between the two sisters. Interesting in the word, in, the, in verse 20, where it says, she went out and met him. The word met is the Greek word hypenteo. Now, Strong's defines that as a military reference to a hostile meeting. So it's a military term conveying the idea of two forces meeting a confrontation. She's perturbed that he was not there. And her first words were a bit of a rebuke. And when Martha reaches him, the disturbing thought that had been uppermost in her mind and her sister's for the last few days came out in verse 21. Let's look at 21 and 22. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. So you notice Martha limits the Lord's working in both time and place. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, in her view, he had to be there physically to take care of this. You needed to be here to heal him. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Verse 22, she thinks she's expressing great faith in Jesus, to which Jesus replies in verse 23, and he says, Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, he, of course, means that Lazarus was going to, going to be risen immediately. But she misses the point. She assumes that Jesus, like the other mourners, was comforting her by pointing out that Lazarus was right, would rise again at the end of the age. And what does her reply reveal? Number one, it reveals two things. Number one, she knows there is a resurrection on the last day. But number two, it also reveals something else. She believes it's too late for Lazarus at the present time. The res- his resurrection will, uh, will occur at the last day. It's not going to happen right now. Now, ironically, while she believed Jesus had the power to raise her brother in the distant future, he did not seem to think that he could do so immediately. What is his reply? Look at 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So Jesus challenges Martha to look beyond the idea of, a, of the future resurrection and to, to trust in him completely. And what is he teaching her? Jesus replied by saying that he himself was the resurrection, and that therefore wherever he is, there is life. There's no need to wait to the last day. Whatever, wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection and life. Also, by using the words, I am, he's identifying himself as God. He's saying, I am is the resurrection and the life. So we might say that wherever God is, there is life. Wherever there is life, God is. But Martha's focus was on the end of the age. But time is no obstacle to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Yes, Jesus will raise the dead in the future resurrection, of which Martha spoke but he was also going to raise her brother immediately. So 
But the Lord calls her to a personal trust in him as the one who alone has power over death. Now at the end of verse 26, he asks her, do you believe this? Jesus had made the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Now he asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you really believe it? Now notice Jesus speaks of faith and not feeling. He did not say to Martha, do you feel better now, Martha? Have you found these thoughts comforting? It's not how she felt that was important, but what she believed. So feelings are deceiving, aren't they? They come and they go. On the other hand, faith is an anchor fixed in bedrock. To believe the words of Jesus is to believe one whose promises are absolutely trustworthy. But Martha gives her answer in verse 27. She said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Now we should notice that she didn't answer his, his, his question directly. Still, it was a good reply. It's obvious she did not understand the extent of his statement about being the resurrection and the life. But even though she did not fully understand that statement, she responds with faith. Now what did she understand in that statement? Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, Jesus is the Son of God, therefore God. Three, Jesus is the one who had been promised in the Old Testament scriptures and who had therefore come to fulfill them. It's a faith that says, even though I may not understand the statement, I have faith in the one who makes the statement. Now, verse 28, Mary enters the picture. When she had so said, she went her way, called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the master is come and calls for thee. Well, here's Mary mourning in her home. Her friends and acquaintances had come to comfort her and her sister. But she could have thought, Jesus has called me, but I have these friends to think about. What, if they, what will they think of me if I leave them and rush to Jesus? After all, it would be somewhat rude to get up and leave them. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. So she takes no thought of them, immediately arises and runs to the Lord. Notice something else. Martha went out, out on her own to meet the Lord. Mary does not go until she's summoned. Verses 30 to 31 now, between Jesus and Mary now. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her, and they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goes, goes unto the grave to weep there. So the mourners, upon seeing Mary getting up quickly and leaving, think she's going to Lazarus's grave to grieve. These, these will be the audience for the resurrection. Mary falls down at his feet in verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto the Lord, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Notice almost every time Mary appears, she's at the Lord's feet. Now what does the position of being at the feet of Jesus convey? Number one, we sit at his feet to learn from him, just as Mary did. Next, we fall at his feet to worship him. Being at the feet of Jesus is a place of worship. And finally, number three, we are at his feet to serve him. Being at his feet conveys the position of a servant. 
Mary does all three here. Anyone who reads this closely will notice that Mary said the same thing as Martha, but the tone was different. Martha confronts Jesus. Mary does not. Martha seems to debate with Jesus, but Mary does not. Mary falls at his feet, but Martha did not. Mary's comments was made in the context in the context of total trust and confidence. She's weeping. Mary's words meant, Lord, you are everything. You can do everything. I trust you totally. Now notice the weeping in verses 33 to 34. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. So this was not just quiet sobbing. This was loud wailing, grievous wailing. And what is Jesus' reaction? Deeply moved, visibly distressed by it. Verse 35, Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. But what do these words teach us about Jesus? Why did he cry? After all, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus the dead, so why the tears? The fact that Jesus wept teaches us that Jesus experienced grief. Isaiah 53 calls him a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He wept because he felt the pain Mary and Martha were feeling. The verse teaches us another truth about Jesus. It teaches us he was not ashamed to be human. He could have repressed his tears, right? He could have said, if I show tears, my tears will look to be taken out as a sign of weakness but he does not hold them back. Verse 36 and 37 now says, Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not die? There's two reactions here. The first reaction was neither an expression of belief or unbelief. It was just an observation, and they rightly conclude that Jesus loved Lazarus. On the other hand, the other group, there was the reaction who were obviously unbelievers. They did indeed read his tears as a sign of weakness. They interpreted his tears as a confession that he could do nothing. He apparently could not stop the illness which now progressed unto death. But we know he is not helpless. The sisters and their friends were weeping, and if they were weeping, he would weep with them. And his people experienced grief, he experiences it also. The 38 to 39. <clears throat> Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, comes to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. So he comes to the grave, or the tomb, still heavy in heart. And in verse 39, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto the Lord, Lord, by this time he stinketh he had been dead four days. So in verse 39, he commands the stone to be taken away. Martha protests because she knows by this time he's decomposing. <clears throat> and there's the four days again, right? So in other words, Lazarus is deader than dead. Jesus replies to her in verse 40. Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee, and if thou would believe, thou shouldst see this, the glory of God. Martha, didn't I say that to you? 
Because obviously Martha was still thinking about the resurrection on the last day. Again, she's, she's also implying that it's too late to do anything about Lazarus because he's already decomposing here. But the lesson Jesus has for Martha and for us also is that in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. Now, we say seeing is believing, right? Why, why do we say seeing is believing? Because the, expre- the expression implies that men and women are untrustworthy. You cannot trust what a person says. You need to see it to believe it, right? But Jesus puts it in another way, the other way around. And the only answer is because he's not speaking of men but of God. Men are untrustworthy. God is not like men in this respect. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. God has never made a promise that he will not fulfill fully. Now, Jesus' statement uh, links seeing the glory of God, which refers here to the resurrection of Lazarus, to this faith. But the interesting thing about this is that Martha apparently did not have this faith. Yes, we just said she believes it's just too late. She and the crowd did not expect Lazarus to be resurrected right there. Where then was the faith that was to result in seeing God's glory? If it was not seen in Martha or Mary or the, uh, the mourners, there's only one person left who can, it can be seen in. Look at 41 and 42. <clears throat> then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. So the answer is Jesus. He's the one that has the faith to what is, what is going to occur here. Consequently, his trust in the Father at this point becomes a model for our own. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ was a perfect and totally trusting faith. This is indicated by the fact that Jesus offered thanks to the Father before the miracle had even taken place. The prayer of Jesus leads to the moment of the resurrection itself. Let's go there, 43, 44. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now notice Jesus calls out in a loud voice. Why does he do this? Is Is it so his voice would penetrate deeper into the tomb? No, it was for the crowd to hear. Lazarus would hear him if he had whispered it. So Lazarus comes forth with no hesitation. And Jesus directs the removal of his grave clothes, and the cloth that was covering his head, and commands, let him go. That may sound familiar earlier in Scripture, in, back in Egypt. God commanded Pharaoh to let my people go. Right? And just as the Israelites were freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, Lazarus and all those he represents are freed from the bondage of sin. Two events parallel each other. And Lazarus is free from the grave and everything associated with it, represented by the grave clothes, those filthy, rotten rags of sin and death that had bound him in the old life are cast off. In fact, the old life itself is cast off, and in place he is clothed with righteousness and the new life. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees 
and told them what things Jesus had done. So the miracle has an effect on both groups, believers and on the unbelievers, because they go back to tell the Pharisees what has happened here. They can't deny it. This man was resurrected from the dead. So as we examine the story, we find the real motive of this miracle is that God's glory would be revealed, and that God's Son would be glorified through it. In other words, precisely the motive that John gives elsewhere for Jesus' other miracles. Every one of his miracles are the result of one thing, his glory and power. The death of Lazarus occurred to demonstrate the glory and power of God. So what is the spiritual lesson of this miracle? Lazarus was dead and he couldn't get any deader. As such, he represents those who are spiritually dead. When one is spiritually dead... He or she can't be any deader. They are as spiritually dead as much as Lazarus was physically dead, with no hope of coming out of that tomb. Stinking rotten sin, and there was no way Lazarus was coming out of that tomb on his own. Now, the resurrection of Lazarus happened physically, but we notice that this is also what happens when Jesus calls one of his lost sheep. According to Scripture, anyone without Christ is dead spiritually. He is dead in trespasses and sins, Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. As such, he is helpless. There's nothing he can do to improve his situation. But Jesus comes. He calls. He calls the dead one by name. The one who hears his voice responds and rises from the spiritual grave to meet him with no hesitation. Notice something else. Death has a grip on those who do not know Christ. Lazarus did nothing to contribute to his resurrection. It's not like he was in there trying to dig out. It's not like he had no power to get out. He had no life, period. A corpse cannot free itself from the grave. And a corpse cannot bring itself back to life. Not even his love for Jesus was a factor. Lazarus could do nothing to resurrect himself. The The distance of Jesus from Lazarus first part of the story is spiritually significant, too. Remember, Jesus was initially quite a ways away. And what does this reveal? Spiritually dead are far from Christ. In fact, a vast distance separates the unsaved from Christ. It's only when Christ came to him, and that's significant, he came to Lazarus and called him forth that Lazarus came out of the tomb. It is only when Christ, through the Spirit, comes to us and calls us to himself just as the shepherd calling his sheep. Lazarus didn't think about it. He just comes forth. And that's how it occurs for everyone who becomes saved. Christ calls his elect, the ones who he has chosen unto salvation, to himself, they come. But he has to make the move, for we will never make it on our own. After all, until then, we are dead, trapped in that tomb. Remember, it was Christ's love for Lazarus raised him from the dead, not Lazarus's love for Christ. And with Lazarus's resurrection, Christ and God, the Father, get all the glory. In this case, the lesson given is to reveal Christ as the resurrection and the life. He's the only way to eternal life. He's the only way out of that tomb. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you in prayer this morning, Lord, let us remember that uh, we were spiritually dead that tomb, just like Lazarus, Lord. <clears throat>